You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Sally. And I'm Zach. And you are now listening to Episode 8 of Season 4. That's right. We are having another roundtable discussion today. We had one as episode one of this season, and we had so much fun, and we enjoyed talking about one particular topic, so we decided to bring everybody back together, well, not everyone who was on the original one, but as many contributors as could come, right. to talk about human gene editing, specifically using CRISPR-Cas9. So it's a really fun conversation, and we'll get to that. But first, we want to tell you about our recent trip to Nashville. We were able to take a long weekend trip down there and visit contributors Jordan and Catherine Short, who unfortunately do not appear later in this podcast on the roundtable. Because they recently had a baby. Right. They've been <laughs> busy doing other things. So we visited them. We saw their adorable little baby named, if you recall, uh, James Tiberius Short <laughs> or Zachary no. Chewbacca Short. <laughs> they did not take those names. They instead came up with a much better name, which is Phoenix David Short. And he's adorable. He is very adorable. So we had a lot of fun hanging out with them. They showed us around some great haunts in Nashville. Yeah, and... this is our second time there. We visited the shorts there last year right. in October. And the weather was much better in October. Right. Last so lesson year. one, if you're going to Nashville, wait and until you can October. choose between <laughs> September and October. Go in October. We couldn't wait this year, unfortunately, because Zach has to go away for some training, but we we just decided to go for it and it was really hot. It was hard to be outside. It was. But last year, it was perfect. Yeah. So I, definitely go in October. But we didn't let that stop us. No, we did not. We had some great food. Sally, where did we go? We went. So we arrived on a Thursday. And we Thursday night, we went to Edley's Barbecue. Last year, we went to Martin's Barbecue. So there's kind of like rival barbecue spots. Right. And I can't really compare them because it's been a year. But Edley's was really good. We it really was very good. It. I do have to say, though, I think the best barbecue I've ever had... Well, it's down to two places, and Edley's is not in either of the top two. <laughs> top two that I've ever had in my life are Rendezvous Barbecue in Memphis, which is a hole-in-the-wall place that is, well, it looks like a hole-in-the-wall, but actually when you go in, it's really big, cavernous, huge place, and it's amazing food. The other one is Pappy's Smokehouse in St. Louis. Yeah, we just went there a couple weeks ago, and that was really good. So good. I will say I think I liked Edley's um, sides better than Pappy's. I just felt like they were more flavorful and more interesting. Yeah. But the meat, I think, at Pappy's was better. Yeah. So, but still a great, a great experience. And then on Friday, well, we... Edley's was in the 12 South neighborhood or 12 South district of Nashville, yes. which, if you're not familiar with it, uh, is an area in the south part of Nashville that is very Most walkable. Famously a street, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a two lane road, so you you can drive down it. And people do, but it's a very walkable area with lots of cute shops. And restaurants. And restaurants. Um, coffee shops. <laughs> yeah, lots of coffee shops. Nashville's a, a really big market. coffee shop town. Yeah, so it was a really cool place. That's where Edley's was. We stuck around um, to get some ice cream. And then the next day, we did breakfast at Fido, which is... Actually, we were going to, but we decided oh. to have breakfast at home that Oh, you're morning. so right. I'm yep. sorry. I'm skipping ahead. We did breakfast the next day Saturday, yeah. So Friday, we just ate in our Airbnb to save money. And then for which lunch, though... Which is also a great way to travel. We recommend Airbnb. We've done it. I mean, there are legitimate concerns about safety, but the way we do it is we only go to places that have had lots of reviews, and we know that we're working with someone who has delivered on their promises before. Yeah, yeah. So that weeds out a lot, unfortunately. Right. But we were we were able to find Yeah, we stayed at a great, a great place, place in East Nashville and the host was wonderful and our place was fantastic, so no complaints there. Yeah, a little bit of a drive from the center of Nashville, but Yeah. If you want to get closer, you have to pay for it. So we were we were trying to do it on the cheap. But for lunch, we went to this great, speaking of hole-in-the-wall, hole-in-the-wall taco place called oh, Los Tacos. This was also in East Nashville, so this is actually closer to our Airbnb. Yeah. And it was a cash-only joint. They have an ATM in the corner if yeah, you forget your cash. Yeah, we didn't realize it was cash-only. Like we did. <laughs> uh, and the tacos are actually pretty packed full of stuff, so you yeah. get a lot of uh, bang for your buck. I think it was... Four dollars a taco. I think three dollars yeah, a taco. Yeah, I got the quinoa sweet potato one, and that was really good. And I got one each of the beef, pork, and chicken. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Esther, I think, really liked the chicken one. Yeah, <laughs> really, really. Oh, good and stuff. we got that um, that agua fresca. Right. That was amazing. 
It was pineapple cilantro aqua fresca. And it was basically just like, I mean, there were still strands of pineapple in it. Right. It was, it was like so fresh. Blended ice water I don't and think pineapple. There was, I mean, much added sugar because it was not overly No, I don't sweet. think there was any. It was very refreshing. Yeah. Especially it was almost like pineapple juice day. with pulp. Yeah. Combined with ice water. With some cilantro, yeah. And then some cilantro. It was, it was really, really good. good. Yeah, so we definitely recommend that place um, for, for tacos. Sure. For sure. Friday night, we met the shorts for DeSano Pizza Bakery, and that was really good. It was kind of our style of pizza, thin crust, um, so that the toppings are really the main stars of the show versus yep. the crust. It was not the best pizza I've ever had, but I really liked the environment yeah the ambiance the because you're the sitting really cool. in this big area with just like lots of benches and tables sort of open seating watching them make your pizza yeah so the uh, wood ovens or, or brick ovens are fired up and they're making all the pizzas right in front of you yeah and cool. the cooks were so friendly it's like they... hibachi meets pizzeria yeah. yeah they were just so friendly they were just kind of like showing us what they were doing and interacting with our kids and it was great it was great dinnertime entertainment for toddlers <laughs> so that was convenient it helped us to be able able to linger at dinner a little bit longer than right. I think we otherwise would yeah. have been able to. So, and then Saturday, as Zach said, we went to Fido, which is probably our favorite breakfast place in Nashville. We went there last year too. Um, definitely on the pricier side, but you you pay, I mean, what you what you pay is what you get. It's right. great food. Um, we had some great uh, whole grain pancakes and a bagel, bagel sandwich. sandwich. Yeah, really good. Amazing lattes. I tasted but did not get regrettably the local latte which i did is made get with the local, local latte, honey and not cinnamon. regrettably yeah that was really really good so good so we definitely recommend fido for people looking for a breakfast place and before we left town we met up with the shorts one more time and went to burger up which had opened just when we arrived last year but we didn't get to go and we'd heard great things about their burgers so we went there and Zach got what did you get a bison burger or a buffalo uh I did I got the the uh, bison burger yeah bison burger okay that was really good I got the I'd heard rave reviews from Catherine Short about the quinoa black bean burger so I went for that and it was really good I mean I make a lot of veggie burgers at home so I definitely know what a good veggie burger is and a bad one. And they had somehow been able to really crisp up the exterior. And, I mean, it tasted really good. And there are two burger ups in Nashville. There's one on Woodland Street. But the one we went to was, again, in that 12 South. 12 South. South. We love the 12 so South area. You should definitely check it out yeah. if you've not been to Nashville. Yeah. So that was – those. clearly it was a tour of food for us. If it wasn't clear, by the way, this whole – segment was your tip of the week yeah go to nashville so, and eat at all those places right. let us know what you think <laughs> but don't go in september we did do a lot of walking to our credit but not without a lot of sweating and a lot of showering right yeah exactly so yeah but it was fun that's basically what we have to say and now we're gonna move on to our round table about something completely different let's do it All right, we're back with Vernacular Podcast, and we are here having our second contributor roundtable, and this one's a topical one. So before, if you listen to the previous episode in which we did a contributor roundtable, you know that we talked about a lot of different topics, each of which uh, our contributors brought to the table to discuss. And one of those was CRISPR-Cas9 genetic editing, and the conversation was really exciting around this topic, and we wanted to open this up to a, a longer form, essentially, so that we could focus on this topic a little bit yeah yeah, with all of our contributors so we scheduled this and so we're joined by our contributors uh will bryan kevin boschman elena forsyth and joshua degastine hey guys welcome to the show hey thanks for having us hello good to be here here. glad we can make this happen all right so crispr cast nine we had a uh it wasn't it wasn't super controversial, but I, I don't think we were in unanimous agreement last time we talked about this. We're concerned with the ethics of the CRISPR-Cas9 genetic editing technique. Um, a brief primer for our listeners who uh, don't know what CRISPR is. Uh, CRISPR is a uh, technique that was um, developed in the last several years uh, that is a method of very precisely editing sequences of genetic material. Um, Human or animal or plant, right, anything. Right, or, yeah, organic DNA. Genes. 
Um, so CRISPR, of course, stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Of course. Um, of course. And, uh, <laughs> and basically it involves uh, – I, I could actually just let our contributor, Will Bryan, talk to us uh, about the specifics, or Joshua. Um, both these guys are much more read up on it than I am. But it allows us to target – uh, portions of genetic material and precisely edit them in ways that we've never been able to do before. So the uh, possibilities that this opens are numerous, and they they range from uh, therapeutic genetic editing, uh, thera- therapeutic somatic genetic editing, or therapeutic germline editing. So one of those is targeted uh, towards genetic diseases but only affects uh, that organism. The That's other, the somatic editing. Right. The germline editing uh, will actually affect all of the progeny of that original organism. And there's also the possibility of enhancement um, uh, modification. So, you know, giving basically your progeny blue eyes instead of green eyes. Um, we're not necessarily there yet in terms of how we ha- what we know about how to edit genetic material, but this is a technique that could conceivably make that possible in the future. And the Chinese are Chinese scientists are well on their way to doing that. Right. Uh, yeah, the Chinese um, have shown themselves to be, um, uh, depending on how you look at it, I guess, ahead of the, the curve, the generally accepted uh, ethical curve uh, in this type of research. Yeah, that's debatable. The, uh, sure. Uh, well, ahead <laughs> depending of the curve. on how you look at it, yeah. <laughs> um, but they are they're showing themselves to be willing to go where others have not. Um, but this technique, as I mentioned, opens up a lot of questions about the ethics of using it, and I thought we could talk about that today. So um, let me start with a first question here. Do you all think that there's um, a bright line, a clearly uh, demarcating line between somatic gene editing, which is what Sally talked about, uh, where the edits only affect the individual person uh, and are not passed on to children, and germline gene editing, where the edits are passed on to future generations. So is this is this a line that's useful in ethical considerations of this technique? Um, and on top of that, what are other bright lines that we can identify in this debate? Yeah, and this is ethically speaking. So obviously there is a, a bright line in terms of the science behind the one or the other, but is one wrong and one is right? Right. In, in terms of just how you define this line, I'm not sure it's quite as bright as just um, whether or not these changes can be passed on the future generations. Uh, one thing that I've heard concerning specifically the ethics of whether or not we should do these sorts of edits is not that in particular, but also the distinction of whether we're doing this to treat some sort of disease or whether we're doing it in order to um, change future generations of people. And that line's not so sharp because you could have some sort of situation where we can recognize the disease still in the embryonic stage. Um, you know, we can do genetic testing to recognize that some sort of genetic disease exists in just you know, a tiny little human embryo. And so then we're in the position where we can modify the embryo to treat a disease which feels like somatic editing, but it happens to be germline editing because we're doing it at such an early stage. So I think that on the one hand, uh, there is an ethical distinction that some people try to draw uh, based on the purpose of the gene editing. And that's a different distinction on the whole than the distinction of simple germline versus somatic. So is, is genetic modification of an embryo necessarily germline editing? Yes. Because you're, you're editing the germ cells, either the, is that right? That's that's right. So for females, uh, they're actually born with all of the eggs that they will use to reproduce later in life. And so making modifications to female DNA after birth has literally zero effect on their progeny, right? So I could modify Sally's DNA. Well, okay, so I don't actually know how to do that. Somebody else could <laughs> modify Sally's DNA today. And if you all have a baby next year, it's simply not going to affect uh, the baby's DNA at all. Right. Um, if I were to modify Zach's DNA today, then it kind of sort of depends on how I do it. So there are so most of the time, genetic therapy uh, for a man would not affect sperm cells um, because those are produced in a specific area of the body from a specific type of stem cell. Um, so it would still be possible to modify the germline through Zach as an adult in theory, um, but typically you just you just wouldn't do that. Right. Um, So when you modify an embryo, whether it's male or female, typically those modifications are going to be passed on to future generations. 
Uh, it's, as far as I know, impossible with current technologies to directly modify the eggs inside of a woman and therefore kind of impossible to modify the germline through a woman as an adult. Uh, and with men, it's, it's maybe a little more possible, but still um, it is certainly possible to do genetic therapy or genetic medical treatment on a man without modifying his progeny. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's really the, the somatic versus germline distinction is just whether or not these changes are going to be passed on to future generations. And modifying embryos is kind of necessarily a, a germline editing. So I think that the last time we talked, I did feel like there was a bright line between, ethically speaking, between somatic editing and germline editing. And I'm not okay. so sure about that anymore. Um, I think I've read some more about it and read some more ethicists kind of conversations about about uh, CRISPR-Cas9 and the use of it on human genes. And and I'm less convinced that that it's clearly right or clearly wrong to edit the genes such that it affects all future generations without their knowledge or consent. Um, I do feel like there are other bright lines in this debate that I would be comfortable kind of laying out that I wouldn't want germline editing to be used if X, Y, or Z, but I'm not convinced that germline editing in and of itself, in and of itself is, is ethically wrong. Okay, what would be an example of a situation where you would be okay with germline editing and an example where you would not be okay with it? Just so we get a better feel for what you mean by that. Yeah, so I think I would not be okay with germline editing if we were going to destroy the embryos after they were edited. So if it was just used for research purposes. Um, so any editing that would be done, I would want it, the the embryo to be implanted and allowed to live. Or um, I don't know if... if if CRISPR-Cas9 has to be used in conjunction with IVF, that would be a concern for me. If, if I think typically yes. Okay, so if, if scientifically speaking, it's only possible to use this gene editing technique in conjunction with IVF in vitro fertilization, then I am ethically opposed to IVF, so I would be uncomfortable with that. Um, if, if this editing technique was used to make animal-human hybrids, I would be uncomfortable with that. Um, and if it was used and then... And then later on, the fetus was aborted. I would be, I would not be uncomfortable with that. Well, and I think well, also it, it depends on what features you're editing for. Obviously, we can't know what uh, what genes produce intelligence or athleticism. But if that was ever, if that was ever discovered, or if there was ever a gene associated with that. Uh, I, um, modifying for those or editing for those traits, I think would also be unethical. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So I think there's also a bright line that we can draw between what we could term therapeutic editing, where you're treating or targeting a disease or a uh, defect of some sort, and enhancement editing, in which you're you know adjusting for better intelligence or eye color or athleticism, something that Elena, as you pointed out, we can't do now. It's scientifically not possible given our knowledge, but it could be one day. Yeah, I think that I would see a bright line between those two things if we could clearly define what therapy and enhancement counted as. And I'm not always convinced that you can define that. But if we could, then I think in most cases that are considered to be enhancement for editing for enhancement purposes, I would probably be opposed to that. Yeah. So you mentioned animal human hybrids. I, I don't, I'm not 100% sure what you mean by that. So on the one hand, some sort of enhancement gene therapy. If you could splice shark DNA into me somehow to make me swim like Michael Phelps, okay, that would be very. Yeah, we're cool talking Spider Man here, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. But I could see why you might find that ethically questionable. On the other hand, one application of CRISPR Cas9 that's already being explored in the labs is to edit away some of the retroviral DNA in pigs that causes humans sometimes to reject. Uh, organs from those animals. So uh, pig livers, for example, are very similar to human livers. And so it's possible to transplant a pig liver into a human. Yeah. So I guess I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. And I guess I wouldn't see that. Yeah. That definitely the use of animal genes for, for, per, for medical purposes that I'm okay with that. Um, I guess I was thinking more of actually creating an embryo that was 
part animal. Like people talk about this. I mean, I know it sounds really science fiction, but people have written articles about them. And so where they would actually be like part animal, part human, and not just in the sense of having like a couple genes. I don't know. I, I guess I don't know how to fully describe it, but I guess I'm I wouldn't be a fan of the Spider Man example. <laughs> I wouldn't so I put it past of, someone. I mean, there's probably a, a scientist out there who's a really big Spider-Man nerd, so it might it might come up, Sally. <laughs> there, there is probably one, by which you mean, oh, yeah, definitely. There are a bunch of them out there. <laughs> I mean, there's probably a, a spectrum, and somewhere along the line, I would be – I would – to put, want to put my foot down, but I guess I don't know what all the different points on that spectrum would be. Well, so just, just uh, Will, on your question, I think we need to distinguish between a hybrid, which is what Sally's talking about, and a chimera, which is what you're talking about. Because the hybrid, um, scientifically speaking, has one cell line throughout its entire body, but the chimera is composed of two or more genetically distinct cell lines. So a chimera is... Uh, an animal that has had a transplant from another animal, for example. So that would be what you're talking about with a pig example. A hybrid is different because you're actually combining two distinct cell lines into one new cell line. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, that's helpful. Like a liger, for example, a lion and a tiger. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, I don't know that I would be opposed to that, to be perfectly honest. I mean, if we can modify pigs so that... We never have to have a waiting list ever again for certain kinds of organ transplants. I think that's a fantastic thing. Well, what if we could maybe borrow some of their DNA somehow to make sure that not only do we never have to have a waiting list for a liver transplant again, but maybe we just never have to deal with cirrhosis again. Um, I think that would be a fantastic thing too. So what do you mean by borrow some of their DNA? Well, uh, this is uh, not based on any factual information about pigs, but let's just speculate that there's some animal out there um, that never, ever, ever has liver problems. And we are able to figure out that this is because of a particular kind of gene that they have that somehow prevents, uh, you know, gives them super livers, so to speak. Well, maybe if we can import that gene and modify it to make it work with our livers, um, then we could eliminate things uh, like liver disease. Um, I, I, again, this is speculation. I don't know if that sort of thing is possible. But I think, you know, you could argue that, okay, that's some sort of hybrid and that's bad. Or, um, you know, we could say that perhaps that's a reasonable level of combining animal DNA with our own. That's not the same thing as trying to give people hooves or horns or something, something really bizarre and uh, clearly wrong like that. It's a way of trying to improve human health and prevent. So so I think this is interesting, actually, because what Sally was saying earlier about how the the line between uh, therapeutic and enhancement editing exists, but it's not always clear where exactly it can be found. I think your point's instructive here because you're saying that in a hypothetical example where we could modify human DNA so that we'd never have to deal with liver problems, what you're really talking about is preempting the, or, or, or I should say precluding the possibility of liver problems. So you're not actually talking about targeting a targeting an actual problem that exists in a person now. You're talking about making it so they don't ever have to deal with that problem. So it sounds a lot like enhancement editing to me. And I say that because you could you could have someone who comes from a family history that um, has a tendency to have uh, heart attacks um, or high blood pressure. And it doesn't mean that every person in that family has high blood pressure, but it means that the family by and large has a tendency to have high blood pressure. And so you could make a case for doing a genetic germline edit of that family so that they would no longer have this um, proclivity to high blood pressure. But you wouldn't actually be targeting problems in specific persons. You would just be making it so they wouldn't have to deal with that potential weakness. And so that really sounds like enhancement to me rather than therapeutic because you're not addressing an actual problem. You're really just trying to eliminate the possibility of there ever being a problem. Sure. But, uh, but I am pointing out, I think, that this to me says that this this distinction of therapeutic versus enhancement isn't necessarily as clear cut as we might like it to be. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, preventing disease is actually a very good thing. And it does sound like enhancement gene therapy to some extent, but it also just sounds like smart medicine to some extent. And even if you want to draw a further distinction and say, well, maybe cosmetic enhancement is, is a bad thing, but other forms are okay, even that 
can be viewed as a medically smart move and under some circumstances. Obesity, for example, is a huge medical problem that we're facing but, in America. But I, and all well, I think, I think that's not a great example because obesity is not a cosmetic issue. Well, it's not merely a cosmetic issue, but how many people would love... I mean, I think it's, it's, a, phys, it's a physiological own. affliction that has cosmetic manifestations, but it's not a cosmetic issue. Like, okay. I suppose well, you, could, you could limit... You could limit editing in that case by saying, well, what is the – why are we fixing this weight problem? Are we fixing it because for health reasons or for right. cosmetic reasons? So sure. I think it comes well, down I... to what the purpose is, right? So if we're what, – what is the purpose of the editing? But and... how can you really identify that either because you have parents who come in and they say they want XYZ trait or – you know, I mean I, I think that uh, – you're you're leaving a lot up to it, it becomes kind of a consumer issue at that point, which which seems kind of uh, questionable to me because you have people coming in saying they want to be edited for for something that might not be a life threatening thing, um, and maybe they're doing it because for the co- just for purely cosmetic or uh, vain reasons. There's no way we can really identify what a person's motives are in requesting something like that. That's right. The motives can be multifaceted and impossible to discern. This is Joshua here, and uh, I think we've converged on a really interesting framework. I think we've started to identify um, aspects of both the negative and the positive. And for lack of a better word, I'll use the term eugenics because it's what Francis Galton was using back in the 1860s when he was writing about this. And negative eugenics is an example of any of those things we've identified, whether extreme examples like Staphylococcus aureus and HIV or obesity, things that are either deathly and can kill you right away or are just inconvenient and might affect your chronic health for a long time. Um, and finding a way to breed those out genetically is obviously one approach that you could take with CRISPR-Cas9. And then there's positive eugenics or things like Elena has brought up along the lines of designer babies and a very materialist, um, consumerist, capitalist culture that would allow for that kind of choice. There would obviously be additional questions of ethics that come up with distribution and inequality. And would that just widen a lot of gaps that already exist in our society. So I don't know if that would be a helpful way to, it's not exactly a bright line, but a way to discuss some of these more. Yeah, I think that is a good distinction. I think, again, it's, it's, it can sometimes come down to the individual situation and trying to decide, well, does this, can we, how do we categorize this? How do we categorize this desire for editing or for um, some sort of medical improvement? And, and it's, it's sometimes hard to, to figure that out, except on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, I think um, just from listening to the conversation, something that strikes me that um, is, is maybe sort of becomes obvious just as the conversation goes on is just a methodology like this, if we discuss it simply as a methodology, is going to um, kind of – it's going to suffer from the afflictions of the medical debate in general in terms of what is the purpose of medicine, what's its proper direction – Um, for what ends and intentions is it appropriate. And I think maybe um, something that that we could focus on here is um, maybe, I I think it's a useful discussion, but perhaps in in the service of of this particular topic, if we focus on, you know, what makes this methodology unique aside from its its medical application as medical. Um, And I think some of those are, are one of the things that that people start to talk about is, um, one, the potential permanence of it. And I think that goes to the somatic uh, versus germline debate. And we talk about drawing a line. And I think uh, one of the one of the issues that comes out of the germline editing is people start talking about the perceived permanence of that and that you pass it down. Uh, to me, that seems almost secondary, though, in the sense of uh, the, the permanence is or, or lack thereof is still subject ultimately to the intention for which uh, the the deed is done, and so it goes back to the question of what is what what in this technique is unique in terms of providing us with new aspects of intentionality. In terms of what does this um, 
CRISPR provide us? What does the genetic engineering provide us that standard medical techniques do not? Yeah, and does that outweigh, does the good of that technique outweigh the value of the genome or... Or one value well, that we talked about in the last conversation about this was the value of consent. And people kind of came down on different sides of that conversation. Is it important to value the consent of future generations? Maybe, but is it more important to value the suffering of present human beings? Sorry, Elena, go ahead. Well, I think um, you're starting to touch on something else that that poses a big question. I mean, this is kind of um, Kevin mentioned this too. If we're doing this for medical, are we doing this for medical purposes or, um, or for some greater purpose of, of, uh, the human race? Because that, um, that poses a big ethical question, I think, because you, you know, at some point you're no longer treating the, the individual patient and you begin trying to treat the entirety of, of humanity and future generations. And, um, and I think that um, if if we're using this strictly for medical purposes, uh, then germline uh, germline uh, editing cannot uh, come into consideration because of um, how it treats these not yet patients, as in future human beings who can neither consent. Uh, and you're also you're not they're not patients, so um, it it does cross a line when you're treating something that, um, affects more than just the individual patient. Um, not only because of how this one individual person can give consent, but also because, um, as far as medical ethics go, um, you know, to the, the whole purpose is to treat the individual human being who is a patient right now with you. Um, and I think when you try to treat beyond that, um, you remove the humanity of it. Um, uh, even by by trying to treat the human race or trying to treat future generations, somehow you remove the humanity of it because it removes the value of the individual. So I totally, does that make sense? Yeah, I'm totally tracking with you. The only part that I disagree on is it kind of relates to the science behind it that Will talked about at the beginning. That sometimes you need to use germline editing in order to treat the individual patient, and in those cases, but we already. Yeah, so we already established germline editing only happens in embryos in very early stages. Correct. Um, only by accident in those very early stages. Right. Only by accident in those very early stages. So it can't germline so, so editing. In other words, in, other words uh, in order to, to do germline editing, which you typically would need to do for an adult, is to directly edit egg cells in a woman or uh, either sperm cells or the stem cells to turn into sperm cells in a man. For an embryo at an early stage, everything is stem cells. Um, the cells have not yet differentiated into their various types and roles. And so whatever is going to become egg cells, whatever is going to become sperm cells, it's all just in one big pot at that point. And so if you modify something, you modify the whole pot. So it's a very, very, very small percentage of cases where um, where editing the individual, meaning the embryo, results in germline or in editing the germline, Correct. Uh, I don't know about that because, I mean, just from reading, it seems like there are some diseases that you can only attack from the embryonic stage. Like waiting until after, like postnatal editing, it's just kind of a lost cause at that po that point. So you kind of have to attack it from the early point and may then end up editing, you know, affecting future generations, but you're doing it for that individual embryo. And so to me, in those cases... I don't see anything ethically wrong about that, barring my other bright lines that I talked about. I also think that in the example of, you know, incidental germline editing caused as a result of you trying to do somatic editing, I think that that, would, that could be covered under the doctrine of double effect, that basically there's a, an unintended, a foreseen but unintended consequence of some good end at which you are trying to aim. And so the germline editing would be a consequence, but it's not what you're actually trying to achieve through the through the targeted editing of an embryo. Right. I, um, it's interesting. Uh, I, I find because uh, I think maybe the um, the direction of my comment was actually intended to be a bit different, just in the sense that uh, what I was I was hoping to relay was sort of the opinion that maybe the distinction between uh, germline and somatic, kind of in my perception, is actually more of a secondary consideration because it seems to me that the permanence or lack thereof 
of any sort of change resulting from this technique is really ethically secondary to the primary question of whether or not the modification is ethical in and of itself. Because it seems if you can make a change and the consensus is that it's a positive uh, medical change, then the permanence of that change uh, kind of seems secondary to the fact that it has already been deemed a positive change. In fact, if it really is a positive change, then the more permanent, the better. So then, I think I think, think it's an argument that can be made. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess I would just I would want to make that quote unquote like how do you decide what is a positive change? And I guess I would want to make that positive exactly. change exactly. And that's the why I think it's a primary question. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think that's why Kevin, you were saying, what's the purpose of medicine? Because I think you you have to contextualize this technique within the broader purpose of medicine. So, what is the purpose of medicine? Right. Well, I'll let it someone more able to answer that question than me answer it <laughs> so so this is joshua again and i think this could be a helpful place to bring in some of the opinions of the articles you all circulated before the yeah. discussion we have leading scientists and doctors essentially pushing back on a lot of what sally is saying here so at the end of that new york times profile on professor jennifer duodna who did a lot of her postdoc and graduate work on this and is now at UC Berkeley, um, the, the quote at the very end of that article says, there may come a time when ethically we can't not do this. And I think this addresses what Kevin is getting at. If they're referring to using CRISPR-Cas9 to make permanent changes in the germline for things that we currently deem as positive effects for all future society... Um, then to what extent have we considered consent of future generations? Um, I don't know if, like, even barring what Zach mentioned about the doctrine of double effect here, um, Craig Venter in the Nature article um, basically seconded this idea when he said, the question is when, not if. And he wants to essentially catch up to China, just in case this becomes an arms race thing, when he says, quote, our species will stop at nothing to try to improve positive perceived traits and to eliminate disease risk or to remove perceived negative traits from the future offspring. So he essentially agrees with that idea of scientific progress is inevitable. We can slow it down as much as we want to, but if we lose time by not perfecting the technique, um, whether or not right now we're practicing on pigs, uh, pig liver or mice embryo, we need to keep doing some kind of work so that we can make these changes in humans when we're ready to. So what do you think, Joshua? Sorry, what was that? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot, but what do you think? I guess I was waiting for that to come out of what you just said, but what, what do you think? Oh, that was a... Uh... Very political, diplomatic, non-comment. <laughs> Is there a direct question here? Well, I mean, I'm curious. Just because you mentioned the value of consent, and I was totally like, uh, that was kind of my argument in the, our last conversation. And now I'm, I'm just not sure that consent is a value that trumps necessarily the individual human being who we might be able to help in any given circumstance. And I'm just, I was just, I mean, yeah, you, you offered a lot of opinions and I was wondering which one was yours. Right. As, as soon as it broaches from treating an individual um, to being something that we're vaguely aiming at community, uh, one of my favorite op-ed writers basically calls this the art of um, statecraft as soulcraft. And as soon as you start making decisions for an entire society, you have to be prepared for lashback. You have to be prepared for fringe groups to um, angrily comment. So um, I think I would be much more hesitant to take a position that says, yes, we need to make these permanent changes for all of society. So I, mean, I wonder if you can help me out with this. Elena and Joshua have now heard the, the future generations consent line from both of you. And I'm I'm nodding along in agreement because I'm tracking with it, but there's a hypothetical that makes it a little bit problematic for me. I'm thinking of an example in which someone with cystic. I, I'm not, by the way, but I can wait to voice that opinion. Just, uh, just so you know, not, not in not, agreement. Not nodding along in agreement with that. Okay. Right. But we can talk about that in a minute. I don't mean to interrupt. <laughs> I just don't want you to give the impression that we're all so concerned about the consent of future generations. I, I think I disagree with that. A fire is kindling. <laughs> All right. Well, so my hypothetical is there's someone with cystic fibrosis who 
wants to have children, but they know that there's a higher chance that their children will have cystic fibrosis. Um, and so they use this technique to make sure that their uh, offspring do not have cystic fibrosis, but because they do this editing uh, uh, in embryo, they're uh, inherently doing germline editing, and so no future generations from those offspring will have cystic fibrosis. Now, do you really think that there are there is anybody there who would be uh, offended or wronged by not having the choice to have cystic fibrosis or to not have cystic fibrosis? I, um, you're asking if, if the people would be, uh, if there's a group that would be offended at well, the it, idea. Well, of wrong. Having... We're talking, we're talking about wrong. So is there a group that would be wronged by not having the choice to have cystic fibrosis or not? Uh, do we need the consent of future generations to eliminate horrible diseases? Yeah, words. that's a good question. This is Joshua again, and I think a lot of it depends on your worldview, which is why there will never be universal agreement. But I, I still remember the first time when I was 17 shadowing doctors at Duke Hospital. It was the first time I met a teenager who had cystic fibrosis hooked up to the lung machine essentially 12 times a day having um, their lungs shaken and vibrated uh, to shake all the mucus um, that was accumulating in their lungs to make sure they could still breathe. And obviously, no parents want to see their child go through that and would pretty much be a fan of anything at that point being able to fix them. Um, if you talk to that same person and told their children they had a risk of it, that they could go ahead and fix with some kind of germline editing, they would probably also be very okay with that. And if you, if you have a very platonic worldview, um, Plato was a big fan of this kind of breeding, just basically finding humans that would be good matches, and according to philosophical principles of the forms, you can make decisions now that supposedly future generations would never disagree with um, because it's a universal principle good that we can all acknowledge or reason towards um, eventually. So I don't know if that starts to get us there. Or if that's what Will was hinting at, but uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily what I was hinting at. I, I'm more just of the opinion that if you have the opportunity to do something good, then you should go ahead and do it, uh, even if what you're doing is for the good of someone who's incapable of giving consent. Uh, I try to do good things for my children, uh, even when they're little babies and they're not old enough to consent about it. I am going to try to pass along money to future generations of my family when I die. I'm not going to ask their consent for that. I think it would be kind of ridiculous to think about asking their consent for that. I'm trying to do a good for them. I think that maybe a little more to the point, if our society does something like shift towards cleaner energy, um, well, yeah, okay, that changes the nature of our civilization over the next few generations that we're putting money into uh, solar power and electric power and you know all sorts of things other than just burning fossil fuels all the time. Yeah, we're changing the way future generations are going to work. And we're not worried about asking their consent because, well, it's simply our decision. We're responsible for making that decision. And we're trying to make it in a way that benefits not only us, but also all future generations. I, I think, think we that if we're put in a position where we're able to make decisions about the genetics of future generations that could be to the benefit of mankind, then we should do it. So I think, well, there's an implicit assumption, though, that you're working from, which is that if we can rid, if we can rid uh, a disease, rid a person and or their offspring of a disease, that's an inherent good. And I think we can examine that assumption by going back to what Kevin was saying originally. What is the purpose of medicine? Uh, because the purpose of medicine is supposed to aim towards some good, but is the purpose of medicine to just rid the world of diseases? Is the purpose of medicine merely to uh, stave off death indefinitely? Or is there another way to think about the purpose of medicine that may not necessarily mean ridding all of humanity of all afflictions? I'm not sure if I could put my finger on the overarching philosophical purpose of medicine as a whole, but I do think that whatever it is, it should certainly include getting rid of cystic fibrosis, for example, if that's a possibility. If that's on the table, then we should take it. 
Yeah, I, I, I tend to concur um, with that opinion. I think where a lot of times I think what makes this um, this technique and genetic engineering unique is not as strictly medical applications in the in sort of the the commonly accepted sense of ridding or eradicating certain diseases, which I think the term disease carries with it an inherently negative connotation, but that it also blurs more than any other sort of medicine we've had, I think, ever in the past. And I know that's a, a bold statement that's probably underinformed, but it provides us not only with typical medical uh, tool, but also one that blurs the lines between medicine and preference. I mean, at what point does being under five foot five become considered a disease merely because we have the power to edit that? At what point, um, I thought it was interesting, Joshua used the term in arms race earlier, because that's one of the things that struck me at when this, um, when I read some of the articles is thinking about, you know, basically breeding an army of super soldiers in sort of in countries that are highly militarized. And at what point does actual human capital become a part of a broader arms race and the sort of uh, abilities that this this technique provides us. I was struck um, pretty pretty profoundly by the cheapness of the method as it was described in some of the articles. And, and it, it might be a little bit understated in those articles, but the cheapness and the relative simplicity of it, at what point then, even if you could outlaw and regulate it, do you have sort of a crisper black market? Um, and these sort of secondary ethical effects that might not be primary to the actual methodology that are going to emerge in the future, we can foresee emerging, that are going to be unique to this um, new model of cheap genetic engineering, I thought was very interesting. This is Joshua again. And to be fair, I think a lot of what we're starting to discuss is prone to, you could call it the cognitive bias or the logical fallacy of presentism. And I think we vastly underestimate the power of natural selection and how certain evolutionary advantages are organized in our society. There are actually very Sometimes it takes hundreds or thousands of years or at least dozens of generations for certain positive things to manifest in our genome that we've been working toward for a long time. So there are some diseases we've discovered that are actually protective for those people when the next superbug or the next common disease in the society emerges. And if we had committed the sin of presentism and said – you know, in the 1800s and said that this disease is bad for all of society, we should get rid of it, and then engineered it out of our germline, and then no one survived when the next Black Plague or um, Zika virus spread through a population. That's, that's actually kind of scary to think that there would be no natural genetic diversity in our population for the first time. Well, I think we need to wrap up here. And so I'm not going to like wrap this all up with a point or anything or a conclusion, but I think a lot of what, what Joshua was just saying, what Kevin was just saying kind of comes back to what, how do we define human nature and how do we define human flourishing? What does it mean to be human and what does it mean to flourish as a human being? And obviously we're going to have different opinions about that. And I think that, that, that kind of underlies though a lot of our conversation that we've had today is, is, you know, what, what counts as human nature? How much do we trust our human nature? Kind of what Joshua is saying, like, can we trust our human nature to get rid of some of these diseases? And what counts as human flourishing on an individual level and on a global level? Um, you know, is it, it clearly cystic fibrosis doesn't fit with human flourishing? Right. But are there other kinds of suffering that are, that can contribute to human flourishing? So... Anyways, I don't really well, have and, a concluding point, but <laughs> well, and I was when as we were talking about the purpose of medicine too, I pulled up the modern version of the Hippocratic Oath, and there are two lines that really stand out um, as we talk about this. One is, "I will apply for the benefit of the sick all measures which are required, avoiding those twin traps of overtreatment and therapeutic nihilism." And I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science, and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. And just considering um, the uh, the side of this that is so much more than the, than chemistry and uh, and genetics and um, and the opportunities that come even in human imperfection um, and uh, and also just the 
um, the moderation that we need to consider as we as we approach all of these things, and to be wary of those who say we have to charge ahead, and uh, regardless of of perhaps the ethical consequences. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, note to wrap this up on. We do have to go because we've hit our time. But guys, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for the great conversation. It was a lot of fun to talk to you all. And uh, we'll keep you posted on the next Contributor Roundtable. Thanks again. All right, we're wrapping up yet another episode of Vernacular Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this Contributor Roundtable. Man, there's so much more we could discuss about this. I feel like we could do 30 episodes and still just scratch the surface on the ethics of human genetic editing. And there's so much we don't know that there's so many things I'm sure that we could have said. Yes, that is true. knowledge that we could have brought to the table. Yeah, we're a bunch of amateurs sitting around the table talking about these things, so... Yeah, please weigh in with your comments and opinions. Um, We can read them on the next episode. And we, yeah, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Yes. Uh, Speaking of weighing in, you can reach us in any of several ways. First, you can find us on Twitter at VernacularPod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash VernacularPodcast. You can email us at Zach and Sally at VernacularPodcast.com. You can also go on our website and comment on any one of our episodes, or you can go to our blog, which you can find at our website, VernacularPodcast.com, or you can just go to blog.VernacularPodcast.com, and you can leave a comment on your blog and join the conversation on our blog and join the conversation there. (laughs) Yeah, and definitely check the blog for a link to or all of the links to many different articles that we either mentioned or didn't mention i've included a ton of resources if you want to learn more about sally works very hard on these blog posts and they're (laughs) packed with a lot of resources for people who are interested so check those all the things we didn't talk about you can find online (laughs) right well about two weeks from now we'll release our next episode and it's pretty exciting because we're talking about genetic editing um but not in the same way exactly. We're talking about plant uh, genes and editing plant genes, GMOs specifically, genetically modified organisms. We're also going to bring back some of our favorite guests from season one. That's right. And get an update from them. So you'll have to wait and who see could who could that it be? Is. Surprise guests. So tune in two weeks from now to hear the next episode of Vernacular Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until then, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. You know that. I'm by